Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narrative shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gould and I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins as always and in this week's episode we're talking with Matt Broberg who is the managing editor of Enable Architect which is a publication from Red Hat. In the episode we're going to talk to Matt a little bit about the work he does at Enable Architect, where the idea came from, kind of how he works with members of the community to help them create their own content content. Um, So yes, it'll be a good insight into how he and how Red Hat uses content, but also how he works as well. But yeah, we'll talk about much more than that too, of course. Before we start, let's uh, give Matt an introduction. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Rich. Thanks for having me. No worries. Could you give everyone a bit of an introduction to who you are and kind of what you do at Enable Architects and Red Hat? Sure. I'm on a team that we call ourselves Digital Communities. And we build uh, communities of authors who are also audiences. So people who are expert in their field. uh, And we help them, coach them into being excellent writers about what they care about. So my particular project now is Enable Architect. We'll get into that. Before that, I was on opensource.com, which is one of the largest publications dedicated only to open source software with well over 3 million unique readers a month these days uh, on a range of topics. And I would coach people who are either new to or learning Linux, a lot of programming languages from Python, Ruby, Rust, etc. And then beyond that, I really enjoy sharing stories. I've been podcasting and blogging for uh, my entire career of 12 plus years in enterprise IT. And I've kind of backed my way into uh, your expertise of journalism, which uh, I still I get a little shy talking about that part of it, but i um, gotten there through an engineering background. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to take the jobs away from our audience, the tech storytellers. <laughs> I'm just saying like you're tra- we do the translation for the techies that can't talk about their stories. So you're coaching them, but I will allow you to proceed, Matt. The rising tide rises all ships, my friend. <laughs> that is super true. Well played. <laughs> So how did you, could you just sort of describe that transition a bit more? Because a lot of of people we've spoke to already, they're not usually from a technical background. Um, So it's quite interesting to speak to someone who's gone from technical to kind of journalism and storytelling. Could you describe how how that happened and sort of where you started and what the process was like? Yeah, that sounds great. I, I got here through, you know, on paper, I look like I have a traditional background. I have a computer science degree. And I, my first job out of tech was at this large storage vendor called EMC out of rural Massachusetts, where I did tech support for multi-million dollar storage arrays, which are like huge connected hard drives with some system software on top. Uh, so just, and I, I went into engineering from there. So I look like I have a bit of a traditional lean towards one pathway. But I went to a liberal arts college where I majored in computer science, yes, but also psychology and and philosophy. And I kept trying to merge the three of them together as much as I can and ran the philosophy club. That's probably my favorite part of college, quite frankly. And then I really didn't like writing code. So I played in the data center at school and um, wrote scripts and fixed problems of like actual physical boxes. But then I would write all the documentation about it. I, I love being somebody that can take something I just saw and like try to break it down into component parts for other people and make things consumable and interesting. And how that translated into my career is I actually, I was an engineer on the storage array things I'm working on and I couldn't help but realize that like we're building shitty software. Oh, sorry, I forgot to ask if this is a rating where I can say that. We don't give a fuck. Go for it. Okay, Matt. thank you. Perfect. <laughs> um, so we were building you know, terrible software. And I started tweeting uh, That's when Twitter was kind of new to me. I started tweeting with people to see if anyone was using it and to see if I could write better software for them. So I just started communicating directly with them and trying to document the huge technical gaps they would have to jump over being a user. I ended up getting in a lot of trouble in the engineering org for talking to customers, which just felt absurd to me. (laughs) Inconceivable. You're not the product manager. You shouldn't be talking to, to customers. But that seemed ridiculous. But the marketing team was 
was in love with the fact that I was building this audience of customers online and they recruited me to start building what they called communities. So I just fell into this different org chart that I didn't plan to and used it under the veil of really connecting people I like, talking about software that I found interesting. And writing about that over and over again results in a very strange but wonderful career. Okay, let's get back to that university stuff. And of course, yes, especially if you go in the US, the most interesting thing about university is the extracurriculars, for sure. University is great, but those are the things you remember that impact you. When you're talking about computer science, psych, and philosophy. Mm -hmm. Let's be serious. Hello, I'm a political science major. Um, we don't often use our liberal arts degrees, but they come in handy. Um, how has psych and philosophy fit into your tech world? And how does that fit into your writing? Because I think that's interesting. Also, yeah. Aided philosophy. Oh my God, that's my favorite subject to date. So first off, if you like anything about engineering, it's really fun to realize Aristotelian logic is the base understanding of computers. Like Boolean true false is one zero. And that's how we've abstracted electricity onto circuits and made that a thing that we think of as true. But we are choosing to think it's true, which is also gets into the core of philosophy that we're all just building layers of theory and belief on top of themselves and each other. But ultimately, like we're making these structured and unstructured arguments to each other at all times. And my favorite course was was all on fallacies, where we had every week we had to bring in something we read and we had to break down the structure of the argument and point out all the fallacious things that were, were said in it. Um, like whether it was a bandwagon, like, oh, everybody's doing this, or whether it was an ad hominem attack, like Jennifer's a terrible person, therefore you shouldn't listen to her argument. And if you do that over and over, even just for one semester, I've just have always been obsessed with how we communicate with each other. So philosophy at its core is, you know, it's both the, the foundation of all technology, but it's also the foundation of how we communicate with each other when you get into philosophy of language and Wittgenstein and modern day thinkers like Pinker and, you know, the whole shebang. It's very interesting because you basically said that technology, which tends to be anti-women, was built by Aristotle, who is yeah. known, was a known misogynist. But it's very interesting also what you were describing about fallacies, because it sounds like I'm guessing you're about the similar ages of me and in your career description that you went to university when social media was only starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. So... I think that class now would be even easier, would we say? Oh, man. Yeah, it, it just, you'd be overwhelmed with the option. Uh, yeah. The one thing I wanted to say on, yeah, Aristotle might have been an, uh, a, a jerk, but technology was fundamentally built by women. Yes. Uh, computer science was written by women. If it wasn't for Rear, Rear Admiral Grace Marie Hopper, who like wrote the first compiler, she would have empowered an entire many generations of programmers after her, Ada Lovelace to all the brilliant women at NASA. Like, yeah, the, I, I feel like it might've started out kind of shitty and then it got really uh, like women were the brain power behind technology. And then we've seemed to uh, do some terrible things since then. But yeah, on the psychology side, <laughs> the what I was trying to connect was I thought I'd get into artificial intelligence I, I thought there is a there's a there there for me where like can you can you find like the component structures that makes up computation and then apply them to software by understanding our human cognition. That project ended up falling apart at my school. Unfortunately, like the professor I was working with left at like a crucial time. But um, I stayed in psych because I was really fascinated by how we think. And um, there's a lot of really interesting things about, again, like the fallacies overlap with our, our ability to study them, which is an approach of, of psychology. And there's so much psychological impact of even and expressing in technical debt happens a lot of the time because people don't know why it's there and if they can erase it and it going full circle with your desire to document and tell the stories, that's how you tell the psychological reasoning because often is a psychological reasoning more than a practical one behind why this change was made or why this choice was made in technology. Yeah, I always find we we are struggling with the framing effects of like, can we frame something? Uh, it's, you know, the, the classic example of the framing effect is the glass half full or half empty. Okay, not terribly interesting. But if I say, like, I'll give you, would you take a $20,000 pay cut to work at your dream job? You might be like, oh, I don't want to lose that money. But would you take 
$20,000 pay increase to go work for the company you hate the most. And you're like, oh no, I definitely wouldn't do that. Okay. So why, why not do the inverse? Why not take a cut and go work for a company you really believe in? That was something somebody used on me to take a, a pay cut, but it was brilliant in that it reveals our very natural cognitive biases that are by definition irrational, but are so ingrained in the structures of our head that uh, they affect everything we do. And I, I think technical debt is a is a resemblance of that. Like, can you reframe the argument that people are telling themselves in their head so that it is urgent and it is important? So like these, these three themes continue to collide at all times in technology. We're trying to convince each other of things. We're trying to structure things in meaningful ways. And then there's always the idea that technology, it has become increasingly personal. So mm. all of these things matter even more. The It's more urgent. It's in our homes, it's in our pockets, it's in our cars, it's in our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about the sort of changes over the last, I don't know, decade or so, and your own transition from as an engineer to where you are today, like what, I mean, not only is what's your transition been like, but how has it sort of mapped onto everything you've seen in the industry? Like how has that sort of shaped what you've done, I suppose, and shaped your decision making? Yeah, I'd say I'll start from the personal and we can extend it out to the larger. Oh, actually, I'm, I totally lied. I'm going to do the other way. So there, there was a really helpful change in behavior, especially as social media became more of a standard for enterprise technology, that the monolithic control of the message, like the capital M message of a company's brand, went from a single decision-making body of an organization to this permeable sort of omnipresence that everyone and anyone who is influencing anyone and anyone is part of that brand. And I got to live through that incredibly uncomfortable cycle in like a Fortune 500 company that was for all like intents and purposes, like trying to plug holes in the dam that was leaking with their fingertips over and over again, as Twitter became more influential than their press releases. Uh, so I, I benefited from that greatly. Like one of my uh, early mentors led this blogging effort at the company and encouraged everyone to start making their own blog and to telling their own stories. And that was in direct conflict with some of our marketing executives. So living in that tension, I benefited from it. There's also a lot of privilege in me being a noisy, uh, tall white guy at a tech company that really enjoyed that type of audience. I got to benefit from that and then build this public persona for myself and and start podcasts for fun and start I've started a dozen plus blogs over the years just on different topics, trying out and experimenting. And along the way, you know, we've seen not only the normalcy of people being personal brands, uh, and we can get into the benefits and disadvantages to that, but also the rise of search engine optimization as such an, a massive portion of a marketing strategy. So back to kind of self-definition, I've gone from engineer and wanting to be an engineer to a really, I really enjoy marketing because I, I realize I value the storytelling more than the output of the software. And I will always have like a little bit of a technical bend to me because I want to get into the weeds and understand something. But I really care about the story, which means I have to understand like how do people value the story. And organic marketing has been, you know, my personal fascination for the last four years or so trying to build that expertise. Uh, so I think our industry is going that way. And there are a lot of interesting ways to pull at that thread. Organic marketing, not meaning for organic SEO reasons. No, uh, exactly meaning that. Yeah. When I say organic as to, to contrast that with paid media and they are complementary, but ultimately different strategies that are supposed to reach the same outputs of either this nearly intangible idea of building a brand, which still has a lot of like feel as opposed to metrics around it to the like very, you know, money ball, like optimizing, like, can we build a quote unquote funnel or whether it's a bow tie funnel, which is a modern idea of it, or like a traditional marketing funnel where you go from this idea of being at the top of something and going all the way down to being a customer. I enjoy one, how bad of a abstraction of reality that is the philosophy part. And then two, just, you know, being able to tell good stories about that, the, the marketing of it. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I do think they tend to be two different roles and they can work very well together, but maybe that's also because I hate math. So I only want to do the organic <laughs> side. Oh, which two things are better separated? I think 
homemade and the organic. I think they're they can work together, but I think they're different people. Different skill sets, yeah. Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm decent with my own, thankfully, but I'm terrible at managing like a company's money. Like I, I don't know what the right return on investment is of like a hundred million dollars in ad spend. Like that makes me want to barf. I would much rather be like, you give me a check, I write some stuff until it lands for people, like rinse repeat. So I, I feel you there. Yeah, and, it, and it's quite a murky field, I think, that whole ad network world. It's a bit mm, interesting area to explore, though, I think. But yeah, very um, oblique, not very transparent. I wanted to um, <laughs> ask you about, so we kind of mentioned the field in general, but like in terms of Red Hat and Enable Architect, um, where did that come from? And did you join at the start? Like, How did you sort of get into that? Um, what What's the sort of thinking behind it, really? Yeah, absolutely. With Red Hat, so we have a number of these audience-specific websites that have community ecosystems around them. Uh, That is the magic of what my team builds. And I think it's really a sustainable model to meaningful community content. So the big one being opensource.com. Another one being the Enterprisers Project. That's for CIOs and really the C-suite. And then the third one that we launched uh, about a year or no, two and a half years ago now is enable sysadmin. So it's focused on sysadministrators. It's redhat.com slash sysadmin. And that went from like, uh, hey, could this possibly be a model or did we just get lucky on the first two? And the the result was in like less than a year, it had reached to be 20% of Red Hat's overall web traffic was just going to this quote unquote blog. But also a significant portion of, of revenue was coming from this blog. And that's like, that's the thing that intrigues executives. And the fact that there's a community and there's money at the same time, like these are normally incompatible, but there, there's like a really cool I almost said synergy, but then I was going to punch myself in the face. There's a really cool combination of efforts happening at the same time there. Okay, that's interesting because the sysadmin, I don't think there are that many blogs or resources, certainly Reddit threads or whatever they're called on Reddit. Um, But... I, so it makes sense it would be successful, but especially sysadmin are suspicious by nature as that is what makes them successful at their job. So they're not going to go for a hard sell. So how does it, how did they find out or did they realize why it made, led to so much revenue? By the way, 20% for just one, one blog to lead to revenue. I wish I, I need to find a way to do snaps on a podcast, but I keep one of the snaps at you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I I didn't. I think okay. So to break down the the pieces is that the sysadmin site writes content for sysadmins, uh, solving actual problems that people are searching for. Like that is the marching order. What is somebody going to Google, and give, can you give them the best answer to that Googleable problem? Does it does it always start with that uh, organic? I would love to say always, but it often does. Uh, It often starts with how can we frame this in a way that solves for someone's intention? What does somebody intend to find when they're hunting for something? And can you frame it in a way? Uh, Opensource.com is a really good example of that. It's instead of talking about like an obscure project that's an open source solution for a given topic, we have all these open source alternative articles, like an open source alternative to Alexa, if you're looking for a voice activation tool that has more privacy to it. An open source alternative to Evernote if you're an Evernote user. You know, sub whatever major technology, can you make a list of alternatives for them? And lo and behold, they get tens of thousands of views. And more importantly, it's not just a single blip and then it's dead. It's what we call long tail content, where it continues to flatten out into uh, a long and sustained readership. And actually, as link backs to those articles rise, the actual viewership of those articles rise. So that's how we solve the problem for a given persona, whether you're an open source enthusiast or a sysadmin. But the the way we solve the problem for the business and why we keep getting invested in is that there are very subtle side posts links to Red Hat resources that are adjacent to the topic. So if we're talking about being a Linux enthusiast, you may also enjoy RHEL, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, our flagship product. So we link to trials to RHEL. We link to explanations of RHEL. It's not in your 
face. It's not the whole article. It's not like hidden throughout the article. It's a very clear call out if it interests you. And lo and behold, people click that and they end up doing what marketers call converting or what a normal person calls using a tool useful to them. And we end up getting like a little bit of uh, internet points in the company for bringing them there. Uh, it's called marketing touch traffic. Also, maybe they won't buy or link directly from what they read on our site, but they're on our newsletter or they follow us on our large Twitter following. And if they're from there and they end up linking to something on Red Hat, we get the internet points again. So this marketing touch model of like influencing people slowly but surely based on what they want to read, uh, but not forcing a message down their throat. That's not really where we fit. That's for other people to do. Um, we get the benefit of being that like light touch, but high volume. And with enough volume in the right audience, you end up converting in a very effective way. It's, it's a lot of that repeat readers. So it's more of a community rather than organic search, read, purchase, convert, that sort of thing. Is it kind of more about, okay, maybe someone's going to read, you know, not just once, maybe three, four, five, six times, then go on to sign up, try or whatever. Yeah, we're definitely looking for repeat visitors. I'd have to do some looking back to know that the difference there, but the uh, of whether somebody is converting on their first read or the sixth read, I'm not sure the variance there. And it gets kind of tough to track if they haven't given us any data. And we try not to be too creepy about it, because there are both morals and laws against that. But the the other element of it is that you said community. And I think the real what really differentiates this site like Enable Sysadmin is that there is a community of regular authors that when you keep contributing as an author, we reward you and give you this, you know, what we internally call like a watering hole. Like we set up regular meetings for sysadmins to talk to each other online. If you publish three articles, you don't know it, but we're going to send you a package with like a Red Hat uh, logoed coffee cup and note book and maybe some cool swag. Uh, and then when you reach 10 articles, you reach this special level we call sudoers, which is a nerd joke for sysadmins. Sudo is what you need in order to have administrative rights on, on a Linux system. So it's very niche and very specific to that audience. But then you're invited, when we get out of COVID times, you're invited down to Raleigh, North Carolina, where the company's headquartered, and we hold a summit together. So it's we don't do it for everybody, but if you make a well-tiered gamified system on top of your community public and you offer good coaching along the way, you know, people who have the time will opt into it and you can end up building a ton more content than you could if you, uh, than you could afford to hire staff writers, if you will. Also, most people haven't been to Raleigh unless they're looking to buy a house because it's considered like one of the highest quality of life in the U.S. and the Carolinas are lovely. I do, um, I do consider it a benefit of the job that I get to visit there a few times a year. Good food in the Carolinas. Too. Very good food. Yeah. You keep saying you work for Red Hat and it's an interesting mm -hmm. choice of word because don't you technically work for IBM? Like has okay. your contract or your verbiage changed at all? I expected by now something, but it's been like a year and a half. Yeah. So it's been a little over two years, believe it or not. And I only know that because I was hired. I got a job offer the day it was announced that the acquisition was happening. Unnerving. It was one of those moments like, is this job going to exist by the time I accept it? Mm -hmm. uh, is what goes through my head. Because I, I know usually how enterprise acquisitions work is like, okay, I buy you, we freeze, we fire half of your company, and then you are bored. You are consumed into the organization. So I was on Honestly, quite skeptical of what was going to happen. It's two years later, Red Hat continues to have its own independent, unique identity in even organizations that are usually the first to be borged, if you will, like marketing. We really are quite separate in a lot of ways. I'm not going to say that we're a totally separate company. That's just untrue. We, we do talk about IBM strategy and how we can complement, but we don't, I don't have any of my like key performance indicators that came from IBM. The only time I see IBM come through is if I buy some RSUs. There's no such thing as a, a Red Hat stock any anymore. It's IBM stock. So that's the only thing I notice. We don't use Lotus Notes. We didn't do any of this weird stuff that might happen one day. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, there is definitely like some cross collaboration in engineering departments, but I, I work for Red Hat and I tend to call it a subsidiary of IBM, but it's really, I know I work for IBM too. I wanted to go and sort of look at, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're writers. Um, I wanted to talk about how you become a writer 
and also your role in like coaching you sort of used the word coaching a couple of times um I was interested in sort of learning more about how that process works and what you do there yeah you know what I didn't even mention enable architect right so we did this enable sysadmin project <laughs> and then that worked so we were like are there other audiences that are underserved by the default content of Red Hat as an organization that are strategic for us to have a connection with so enable architect is is uh, a redo of the same model but for an architect audience and architects are a pretty complicated mesh of rather senior experts in their field who are also influencing the business in ways that say like a day-to-day software engineer or sysadmin would not. They tend to be as close to like a CTO as you can get without having that kind of title. Um, and you have specializations in networking and storage and cloud and software architecture, uh, whatever it may be. So I'm trying to build a similar community editorial, but with a very new audience for Red Hat, uh, at least for my team. And it's been really fascinating to to build that out. And what's the sort of process like of kind of bringing people in and sort of helping them to write, especially, I mean, are they, are they kind of writers or are they people that aren't necessarily kind of skilled in that sense? Are they sort of new to the writing game? Yeah, I so to to your point there there will be a a wide spectrum of comfort with different forms of communication. I don't think you get to a architect role. Um, my understanding from researching this from we launched the project, I I got to study and reach out to a lot of people for a few months beforehand and then we spun the project up and I'm still bootstrapping it while we hire a team eventually and and somebody becomes the full-time editorial manager who has that expertise because I that is not necessarily mine. I will build the technical community around it and grow that. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm reaching out to people who have architect in their title. And many of them, they have to be great storytellers to some degree to get that sort of promotion, to get that sort of clout inside an organization. But they don't necessarily have, you know, pros. Like they're, they haven't been blogging. They haven't been uh, exercising muscles. They haven't read shrunk and whites, the elements of style, which is on my desk and has helped me out a lot uh, as I took over this role. Uh, so I, I very intentionally frame it as coaching because I don't want somebody to feel like they have to show up ready to write. I want them to show up because they're architects and they, they're care, they care about that audience. We can do the writing part. It's not that hard. Just kidding. It's really hard. So I just ask people to share an outline, share a story, just send me an email effectively of what's on your mind. And then I show them the pieces that could add up into a a narrative and give that back to them. And like we end up collaborating through this experience of getting to a final product. Ideally, and the way we do editorials is like, I do kind of the storytelling arc aspects with them. I tag in a coworker who's really good at grammar and flow. And then we all do a final review before it goes published. So this is not a lightweight, like go publish to medium type thing. And I think there's a great use for that. This is a, you want something to be really proud of and you would like some expertise along the way. And that's like the service we can offer. So that's why I call it coaching. Yeah, it's not user-generated content. It is proper content. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's user user supported content. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, you you need, I I like it more. I love the collaboration with people and leaning on others' expertise. You know, the, the stuff I've published, my my wife or my mom, like people who I trust with second opinions uh, would be editing it before it went live. I don't think I've ever published something. I'm like, wow, that was really good. That just came right from me, like some hand of God. Hot tip, read out, stand up and read out loud anything you're going to publish before turning it in your drafts. Like you hear things differently when you say it out loud. A very what the fuck moment a lot of the times. Plus you get repeat words and things that different software never find for you. You're like, why did I write um and ah so much in this article? This is weird. I do write like gotta, have to, and then I'm like, oh, mm-mm. Or I have to... Like, I have to check myself for how many times I use leverage a tool or other obnoxious language. Nobody should use semicolons, in my opinion, unless you're winking at someone. What? No. Yeah, or Immanuel Kant. I like, I like right. I'm talking to British person here. They love semicolons. Oh, yeah. That's a, semicolons are good. Words. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, obnoxious punctuation. Let it go away. It's so what, weak. What would you use in place of it? 
a period in another yeah. sentence. With, oh, maybe. Uh, you can start a sentence with end, but, or yeah. No. Okay. Listen, two okay. Americans are getting it up on the British. That's not right. <laughs> what would you say is the most, obviously you have these organic friendly articles, the alternatives to choose the how do I, a guide yeah. to such and such, you know, how we all Google but tip five tips for such and such, but what is the most interesting user generated article you've come across that you're like, wow, and it worked and it was weird. Oh yeah, there's a great one uh, that immediately comes to mind for me of this guy wrote an article, how Ansible, which is a technology, how Ansible uh, saved my home was I think the title. And it was a story of how this guy uses the software to resolve a conflict between his teenage daughters, uh, who were both like fighting over the same uh, laptops and uh, access to certain computers in the house. And he had a series of systems where he could just re-image them very quickly and make them personal to them each time they went there. That would have been absolutely impossible to, to manage day to day if you didn't have this, some software to automate it. Uh, and I, I just thought it was it was just such a touching, like an honest storytelling of like being a dad and being a nerd, which I relate to. I look forward to being both for a long time. And I just I had no idea how it would do. I assumed it would bomb, quite frankly, from a from an SEO point of view. And it was just one of the all time highest read pieces on the Internet uh, for our site, like with hundreds of thousands of page views and still getting regular readers to it. It's just so, it was just so honest and a great reminder that like a first person narrative is really charming. And it's honestly like the only thing left that's new on the internet is like your story about something, not like the right answer to something. Like what is your answer to something? And that continues to surprise me at how well that does. I think people are done with the end all be all must have seven list. You know, that will do okay for sure. But like, how does Rich get through his day? How does like Jennifer prioritize her work? Like that's what's interesting. Cause it's, we're just, I think it's just a sign that we're continue to be desperate for for connection and that first person narrative just reminds you that you're not alone in discovering something new. And it's something people want to share more. I think there's some sort of shame if you're sharing seven, or at least those are the people I unfollow, seven inspirational quotes a day about business by, you know, this businessman from 20 years ago. But, and personal story of something you've been through is interesting. So that's great. That's super good. I put you on the spot and you've stepped up, Matt. Good job. <laughs> Uh, this is fun. I, I love podcasting and I miss banter. So thank you for the invite. <laughs> you, you said you thought it was going to bomb from a SEO perspective. Um, yeah. I wanted to know, like, do you have to, as an editor, balance doing stuff for SEO, but also kind of taking a punt on some sort of slightly different stories? Is that just something you've got to balance, I suppose? Yeah, I I have a a bit of a metric in my head. So I use metrics to help me guide behaviors so that I can invest in people as much as I want to. Uh, but I would just give my time away very freely all the time and maybe not get my job done if I didn't do that. And the there's a little bit of a, it's a soft equation for sure, but it's how many hours is this going to take? And what is the potential reach of the article? How many page views, short-term, long-term? Uh, is kind of like a, a quick heuristic I have every time I see a piece. And this one, I'm like, it would take, like, would this have the strongest, is this the strongest angle for this article? And I'd say, yes, it is a very strong angle for the article. The first person narrative was the story here. And to change it would take numerous hours of back and forth. So that won't be worth it. But then is it going to do the best? You know, my gut said at the time, probably not, but that's not uh, a determining factor. We're not paying these technical people to write on these sites. And I'll be very frank about that. It's, it's not available to me in my job. So I always know it's like they're doing this out of the joy of sharing and for free. This is their hobby, not their job. If we want to get exactly what's going to quote unquote succeed based on our assumptions, we should pay people to do that. And we do on the side when we need to. But in this case, I think it was the right balance of it won't take me a lot to edit it. Uh, it's a great article. It's got a thoughtful piece. Let's publish it and see what happens. And what we, the only thing I think I did was like add H2 headers because we found that like well-structured articles do better in Google because Google's looking for structure and for summaries. And 
uh, you know, then it just surprised us. Like we, we do a little bit of guessing whenever we see an article and talk amongst ourselves and the editorial team and try to test ourselves to see if we understand what we'll do well and not. Um, and when something surprises us, like that's, that's a signal. So uh, update the mental model after that. But uh, yeah, we always try to keep that balance in mind. If it was a potentially low performer and it would take me many hours of editing because their, their grammar isn't quite good or they didn't really get to any sort of conclusion that's meaningful to the reader, I would say, hey, I would love to publish this. It needs more work. Would you like to take it a second whack at it if I had time? But if I don't have time, I'll just say like, hey, thank you for the submission. It's not a fit for us at this moment. And, and it's really tough because it's, you know, rejecting somebody trying to offer you something freely is it's always challenging, but it's a, a necessary part of the limited time that we have available to us. And a high throughput site like opensource.com, you, you have to end up making that equation at some point of like the return on investment. So you've got quite a tight focus, I guess, as an editor at the moment, but I'm interested to hear sort of how you do sort of keep up to date and stay relevant in, in kind of quite a fast paced industry, I suppose. Like what tools do you use? Like, how do you go about it? Yeah, it's pretty strange to, to be frank that like to be a writer in a given audience, like technology like it's it's hard to know whether you're learning enough or learning quickly enough, going to the right depth or breadth of it all. But what I try to think about being really intentional about what I'm trying to be, like who I am in this. And I don't see myself like I don't identify like my identity as editing manager, Matt. Like that's not a title I'll probably hold again. It's something I am, I'd say, okay at. What I'm great at and what I really enjoy doing is being this community builder on top of an engineering mindset. So I optimize what I'm learning around that. Tactically, I use a few tools that, that kind of help me aggregate important information. For better or worse, Twitter is still excellent to me. I filter a decent amount of noise out of it through blocking keywords that are irrelevant. And then I have a very small list of people that I'm looking, they're my signal. Like they're, they're telling me that new information is relevant and they've done that for years. And then uh, I bookmark a lot of information using Feedly is my RSS reader these days, which is is wonderful. I use that for like the stream of information coming from all these different sources from Hacker News is popular in my space, Reddit is popular in my space. I don't spend a lot of energy reading everything. I just scroll through it a couple times a week, be like, is that interesting? Is that interesting? And then I have my own productivity system I'm pretty into that as a subject for better or worse. And Notion is my like place to do that these days, which is a really brilliant tool. So I organize things into kind of knowledge I'm trying to gather and then, you know, try to reread core things and build up some sort of expertise along the way. So Feedly, Twitter, Notion uh, do me pretty well as a as a trio these days. I haven't used Notion, but yeah, I've, I've seen it. It does look very clean and stylish anyway. It looks like a sort of place you can you can go to to refresh your mind anyway. It, it is, it's baffling what you can do with it. And I mean that both in a very positive and very negative way where like you're sorting, it's basically the coolest thing to databases since the spreadsheet. Like a spreadsheet is like a visual database. They have taken a database and then given you seven forms of visualization, and then you can embed them over and over again and sort them and filter them in different ways. So I find a number of people I really respect find it to be awful and would never use it because it's just overwhelming. I, as the perpetual tweaker and optimizer, like find it very satisfying. There's always something to fix. But I also get this amazing dashboard of like the actions I'm trying to do today and the information I'm trying to learn. And I can see it in this like interconnected database without running my own infrastructure, which I have tried to do before and it's not gone very well. So uh, it works for me. Was it your idea to start Enable Architects? Um, hmm. I'm just wondering, like, what's your next idea? Like, what what gap do you see in the industry? Not that we're going to steal it, but <laughs> to your competition in this podcast and the in the podcast sphere audience. Yeah, no, full full disclosure, not my idea. I I just got the I was in the right place and I uh, got the a lucky promotion to like to launch it. And my my boss is quite is quite insightful on how to do what we're doing well. Uh, he's a very beh behind the scenes guy, so I won't give his like name as as a shout out, but um, he's pretty brilliant about this stuff. So he he saw he's built this model over the years, and 
him and I work well together because I feel like I'm like a tech anthropologist at heart where I just like, I'm just observing what I see and trying to document it and say like, does this look right? And I, I've been doing that for two years with him now. And he's like, yes, you're doing, that is exactly what we're doing. Now go do it again. So architects, the architect audience was his, his idea, um, which is in collaboration with this really brilliant research arm of Red Hat, who has identified core personas that influence our business and either, you know, end up saying yay or nay to purchasing us. So it, it's, it's a much larger ecosystem at play. And I've just been trying to find the fun in it. Like I'm not an architect, but I feel like if I, if I'm going to grow a community, I have to be part of the community. So I'm trying to really read these books on system architecture and be in places where architects are talking to each other, mostly LinkedIn, you might be surprised to know. But like what's happening, what gaps are there next? I think they're, I'm really interested in things that are adjacent to tech these days. I think being an American and living through the last year of what we've lived through, I think there needs to be more conversation about what it feels like to be, for lack of a better terms, a modern American, like reflect on the principles of what we've what we've learned, investigate their usually horrible origins, then decide what to keep and what to shed in the future of being American. I think the same is true for masculinity. Uh, like toxic masculinity is like the what many of us swam through growing up. And I've done a lot of work to not be that. Uh, and I want to continue to not be that and, you know, have the gumption to share what it's like to get past that online. So I'm definitely thinking more that way. Maybe work-wise, remote work is so important to people. And uh, there's it's not going to be the huge savior that people think where we're all going to stay remote when we're allowed to go hug each other. But there will continue to be this hybrid model of remote and in-person. And I think there deserves to be more attention to how to do that well and what, sh- what, you, can, what you need to do to do that well. I think there's a lot of fun topics there. May I strongly recommend, if you haven't listened yet, seen on radio, the second season, Seeing White. This was actually my homework for the anti-racist classes I took uh, that Kim Creighton runs, the basics of anti-racism. <laughs> and um, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's heartbreaking, but it's probably the most important journalism I've experienced recently. And it goes from the defining and the creation of whiteness, because that was something legislated in the U.S. So it's incredibly important, very interesting, both for um, our roots based on, as even though I don't live in the U.S. as an American, our roots based on, and British people, it was a triangle, but on both slavery and indigenous people and what we've done and the specific, it's It's the most important thing I've listened to in the last year, but it's not easy. And I think I need to listen to it two or three more times to really relearn everything we've learned, but it's fascinating. So I highly recommend it if you've not read it yet. Very cool. No, I I haven't. um, listened to it yet. It's a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) I'm very up for it. Yeah. I think the 1619 Project uh, blew my mind. Um, That's a big one worth linking to. And uh you know, I, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was known to be a sleepy flyover place uh, in the States until a, a year ago when the murder of George George Floyd woke a lot of people up. And it's, yeah, it's been jarring and uh, really important. And I have an infinite amount of information to learn and consume, but um, a little bit at a time, we all are, we all can put a little energy in and keep learning. We have to, yeah. We have to. Well said. So I know it's not at the end of the hour, but I've got a couple of quick questions just to yeah, let's do it. close off. So it, as you've been saying, you're obviously really embedded in the community and you're learning a lot from architects and stuff. But I wanted to know what you think that audience, but also software developers and engineers in general can learn from what you do and what, what we do. So in terms of writing, storytelling, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate that any a sufficiently promoted engineer always gets to this place where they start to talk about communication as not a soft skill or a non-technical skill, but probably the hardest thing they've ever tried to take on in their lives of influencing others through words, uh, not just a pretty slide deck or demanding 
because they report to you, but really influencing people and communicating problems in clear ways. And I think wherever you are in your engineering career, software systems, um, early, late, spend time learning to communicate. See that not as like, oh, this crappy thing I have to do at the end of the project. I've got to document how to how people can use this. It's like that is the project. Your users are the point of building the software. And if you value promotions and that and you care about that, just see that the, the most successful people are also excellent communicators and convincers. And that doesn't just happen. Well, actually, I should, shouldn't say. For some people, that will just happen. Like you'll just pick it up and pattern match. That wasn't true for me. I'm only a decent communicator today because I spent 10 years in Toastmasters and giving public talks. And I spent, and the first talk I gave, I almost passed out and um so much that the audience was concerned for my, my well-being. And then I podcast and the first two you could probably still find on the internet, but I hope you don't. And the third one was pretty solid called The Geek Whispers, where we got up to 100,000 listeners and talking about career growth in IT in tech. We didn't mean to start there, but we got there by talking to each other and putting the sweat equity into it. So just the recognition to anyone interested in engineering that you will have to communicate. And that is a skill that isn't an afterthought or an, a nice to have. It's it's the freaking job and is a great thing to take away. And you know, if I'm talking to companies, if you're more of the business oriented person, you're like, what does this do for my company? Um, to recognize that like great community is great marketing. And Every time you're struggling with marketing, you can build a community around it and make it stronger and better and, and serve an audience. That is one of the coolest like cyclical systems I've seen in our industry. And it seems to go across verticals and, and industries quite a bit. So think about community systems and think about organic as a way to not just, you know, attract people to your brand, but to, to make it worthwhile. Uh, there, there's so much value in looking at the intersectionality of this work as opposed to being like, you know, I'm a marketer, or I'm an engineer, like we're all a little bit of a lot of things. And it's so important we come back to tech being personal and you have to explain things. It can't be a locked box anymore. Tech is our lives, but also for like your architect audience, they're talking equally with business stakeholders who may not know what an API is yet. Yeah, that's and that's the core differentiator of an architect is that like they're an engineering mindset with a business mindset layered on top or vice versa, whatever way you came, like you can't just have one or the other. Uh, which just reminds me of another topic. If you're looking for ideals to, to steal Jennifer, I think the the low code movement, like this idea of no or low code investment in software, I think that is the thing that follows, you know, we undervalue today, like how mind boggling spreadsheets were that like people could sort information and do pretty complex, you know, statistical analysis on it, which is like applying a database for normal people. But I think like Notion is bringing database to normal people to the next level, like with the interconnectivity of data sets. And then with as silly as it sounds at first, like the fact that Microsoft released its Excel data model into a low code programming language that's open source, like, holy shit, like that's going to end up it does nothing right now, but it's going to end up powering dozens to thousands of projects that will make it so people that are quote unquote normal, non-technical users are doing really complex technology work uh, and in a normal way. So I think the continual normalcy of technical competency is wildly undervalued. And we say like, well, no, you should learn this and read the freaking manual. It's like the manual is going to eventually go away and we're all going to be building things collaboratively together. Like be, be where that is as opposed to yelling at people for not being where you are. And it's true. The only way to really embrace inclusion, equity, and diversity in tech is for everyone that's a user to become a maker. So it's a very inclusive idea to have the low, the low code, no code movement is. Yeah. I think it has to be okay for somebody to be a maker, right? Wherever they are in whatever skill set. I think there will always be people that will opt out and that's that should be okay too. And I think they should still be represented while opting out. But yeah, I, I think this idea that like, if you're not there building it yourself, you're not the audience is eventually, yeah, it's just going to feel incredibly antiquated. Just to, just to wrap up, what are you like excited for or looking forward to over the next sort of 12 months or so? vaccines man <laughs> for all that is holy no i i am you know i i am really excited for our 
our evolution of what becomes normal after this uh, new normal, next normal, those phrases are horrendous uh, for, I, but I can't think of a better one. So who the hell am I? But the, this idea of like, I, I miss travel a lot. I love traveling. I miss my family. I don't mind living in the Midwest. I love it out here, but I chose to be here because it was easy to fly other places. So that that's, you know, first and foremost, that's really important. Uh, second, totally honestly, I just bought a huge fixer upper of a home in Minneapolis because we want to be part of Minneapolis. We want to be part of a, a better future of Minneapolis as opposed to being we're, we're in an adjacent burb at the moment suburb. And I need to fix like a garage roof, like some learning some some home skills, if you will. Technology wise, I do think edge is getting less from a kind of hand wavy term to like very clear architectural guidelines for different forms of thinking of like the edges from data center core out to, you know, point of service, point of sale. Um, and uh, I think talking about like the networking across those and keeping them secure and keeping them performant is really fascinating. So if you're on the nerdy side of things, ed ar edge architecture really interests me. And I love that you can kind of build it at home with Raspberry Pis and, and different network zones. So I think it also translates well for the hobbyist uh, and the IoT enthusiast, if you will. Yeah, for sure. I think it's kind of interesting that that doesn't seem to get the coverage that things like AI and stuff does. And it's kind of a whole different corner of tech, although obviously it's related. It's It can be a lot more fun and a lot more democratic, I suppose, participative. Yeah, it feels full circle, right? It feels personal, which seems to be our like hidden theme. I, God, I can't stop searching for through lines. It's a you know hazard of the work. Um, <laughs> but like, it's very personal that we're all like setting up these silly devices, whether it's Pi hole so that all the ads on your network disappear or whether you're setting up like a Raspberry Pi to be like something that waters your garden. There, There's every form of project that is Internet of Things. And I think it it's yet another way of democratizing the technology, making a touch easier, but also way more approachable when it's a $30 cost point. And we're assuming when you talk about redoing your house, it's going to be like Pee Wee's Playhouse, very connected as well. Is the first, <laughs> it's the first IoT home is Pee Wee's Playhouse. I didn't even think about that. But this is going to be the first house where like, there are going to be two people in it that don't hear each other in every room. Because oh. uh, like live in a, a much smaller footprint now. So I'm like, I guess I don't want Google or Amazon listening to everything we do. So I guess I'm going to have to figure out this open source version or set up an old school like radio, like ham radio throughout the yeah, house. Like a can and a string? Can and the string. I didn't think about that, but I'll keep that, you know, it's all good <laughs> ideas until it's not. <laughs> Cool. I think that's probably a nice place to to wrap up. Before we do, um, Matt, could you let everyone know like where they can find you online? Like if you've got anything to promote, um, give it a shout out. Sure. I'd love if you are at all interested in system architecture or IT architects, please check us out redhat.com slash architects. On the personal side, you can find me pretty much everywhere on social at MB Broberg. And I, you know, I blog a bit and share about the communities I help build at mbbroberg.fun. So check that out. Sounds great. Yes. Please do check out all of those things. We'll include links to them in the show notes so you can easily find them. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. It's been a great conversation. We've learned a lot. We really appreciate you coming and spending some time with us. That's all for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. Gull. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at JK Riggins. So please do that. Um, of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, which is at underscore talk about tech. For all of our earlier episodes, please visit the website, which is talk about tech podcast.com you'll be able to find everything we've done so far i think it's about 10 12 episodes now um so yeah thank you for sticking with us if you've listened to all of it if you haven't go and check out the early ones and we hope you enjoyed this but yeah we'll see you next time with another great guest but until then take care and goodbye <laughs>